Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, April 7th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Go to commentarymagazine.com where we give you a few free reads and ask you to subscribe. You can also buy our merch at uh, uh, there. Uh, just look for the word merch in the, in the banner at the top and uh, you'll see what you can get. Um, with me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Um, so, Noah, you have some thoughts on the U.S., Iran. There's some interesting news uh, yesterday suggesting that um, uh, Israel is taking a more aggressive conventional approach to, uh, to the threat from Iran uh, a retaliatory uh, strike using means where I'm not sure we knew they had. Um, anyway, uh, Noah, please. Yeah, what you're describing is um, apparently something that's been ongoing for some time, but hasn't gotten a lot of press uh, in the West. And it's um, recently getting more ink, I think, as a result of the ongoing negotiations in Vienna to restart the Iran deal, the JCPOA. Apparently, uh, Israel took credit for a limpet mine strike on a ship um, that is supposed to be in this Iranian commercial uh, commercial ship that is largely perceived to be, even in the press, uh, perceived to be this um, uh, affront for weapons and uh, for you know just just disrupting the region. And uh, yeah, this, so this is framed as Israel um, striking back against uh, Iran and and you know having some um, insurance in the event that a deal is struck in Vienna. And there's not a whole lot to talk about when it comes to Vienna right now. The negotiations are ongoing. It's described as productive, which is to say that nothing is actually happening. That's diplomatic speak for we're just sort of in the room and talking. And they're not even actually in the room. You have Iranian negotiators at one hotel and American negotiators at a hotel across the street and the European partners literally shuttling across the street trying to have these negotiations. And the sticking point is essentially who moves first. Um, the United States wants Iran to demonstrate in some capacity that it has uh, made moves to again regain, you know, be back in compliance with the JCPOA, which probably means um, reducing its capacity to enrich uranium or reducing its enrich uranium stockpiles. Iran says we're not going to do one thing until all of the sanctions from the Trump era are uh, eased. Uh, and that's actually easier to do. That's just a switch you can flick. Um, so, you know, everybody's pretty, pretty much stuck there for now, but the Biden administration has a, a self-imposed time frame on itself. And it's not necessarily in line with political, um, the political calendar in the United States, although that matters, they want to get something on the books before 2022. So it's harder to roll back. But according to the people who were talking to reporters, their objective is to get something, some sort of framework in place before, I believe, June, the summer of this year, because Iran is having elections. And in Iran, the thinking is that, and the thinking is always ever thus, that the hardliners are coming. The hardliners are on their way and they're going to, they don't want the conservatives in Iran, they don't want a negotiation. They don't want an Iran deal. We, get, we have our partners, our moderate partners and people like Rouhani. And so we have to get a deal in place now with Rouhani because we might get, you know, the second coming of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad on the, on the back end of this thing, and then all our efforts will be for naught. 
So Biden is the one who's who's put a fire under this negotiation. The Biden administration has put a fire under them, which means they're going to be the first to bend. Right. Okay. So what's what what's interesting here is uh, uh, you're saying that uh, they might want you know a deal on the books before 2022, but that in fact they're thinking about the Iranian elections in June of 2021. Correct me if I'm wrong, and it's another interesting thing about the fact that they're actually taking real deliberate concrete steps toward this goal. The Iranian nuclear deal was unpopular in the United States. It was not popular. It was unpopular. As a result, uh, it could not be submitted to the Senate as a treaty uh, because it would never have uh, achieved treaty status. And indeed, when the decision or the determination was made to put it up for a vote uh, in the Senate, the way that it got structured was that you were going to have to vote uh, either two thirds or whatever. There had to you had to have sixty votes saying no, as opposed to sixty votes saying yes in order to derail the deal. That was the negotiation with the Senate in uh, 2015. Why? Because it was unpopular. If uh, ordinarily, by the way, treaties uh, as proposed by presidents, real treaties are actually popular. Here's an interesting example of this. In 1979, Jimmy Carter sent the SALT Treaty which was never passed, SALT II, excuse me, the SALT II Treaty, which was never passed by the Senate uh, in a rejection, a Democratic Senate's rejection of a Democratic president's most important foreign policy aim. It was a very, very significant moment in, in, in post-war American foreign policy. Uh, didn't pass. Polls showed, there weren't as many polls then, like hardly any, but polls showed that close to two-thirds of the American people supported the SALT II Treaty. You said to them, do you want there to be a treaty limiting nuclear warheads or whatever what, whatever the question was? Gallup asked it, Harris asked it. It was really popular, and the rejection of it was on substantive grounds. People thought as properly that it enshrined a Soviet advantage in nuclear warhead numbers and it was therefore a terrible deal. So I'm going to say this again, as I say it all the time, like Biden does not have a, a big margin of support in the United States, even though he, his stuff is polling well. Five seats in the House, a tied Senate, four and a half percent, one by four and a half percent. Um, why he would uh, try to um, hang uh, the first year of his presidency on the desire in foreign policy terms, or at least part of it, on the desire to re-enter a deal that was unpopular when it was signed and in which there was absolutely no blowback when Donald Trump pulled out of it in 2017. No blowback. Not only wasn't there, there was no political cost and probably a little bit of political benefit to Trump for his having done that. So politically, this is a very peculiar thing that's going on. That's all I'm saying. It's not a normal way to go about it if you are in the political circumstances that Biden is in with an, seeking an unpop, a policy that has been proven to be unpopular and whose rejection or removal 
was not unpopular. Okay. Well, uh, in their defense, insofar as it is a defense, the Biden Joe Biden campaigned on returning not to the JCPOA necessarily, but to a stronger, more robust JCPOA. And everybody on the, in his team within the State Department and negotiators at, at, in Vienna are maintaining, adhering to that pledge, are saying that we need a stronger version of the JCPOA. The, the, the JCPOA that was passed in 2015, that was adhered to in 2015, can't, we can't simply rejoin it. It's insufficient to the moment. Um, so, and this is, I mean, they're, what they're doing right now is designed to fail. It's not going to succeed in that effort. And it suggests, obviously, because they're self, their self-set timeline, that they do want just something, anything, some sort of framework in place. But maybe that's just a predicate. Maybe they just need a, a fig leaf that can demonstrate that they made a good faith effort toward restoring some sort of a nuclear negotiation here so that when it fails, that they've appeased their coalitions on the left who will accept nothing less than abject surrender before nuclearized Iran. Well, something we've been saying on the podcast for a while now is that um, uh, popular American interest in U.S. foreign policy is uh, at a very low point. I mean, uh, to the extent that Americans pay attention to foreign policy at all these days, it's it's um, it's a, such a minor issue um, sort of, you know, on their radar. So in that sense, um, they could almost sort of, you know, try to sort of sneak it in. The press will cover it, you know, uh, glowingly as this, you know, this sort of this peacemaking effort after Trump ruffled the world's feathers. And, uh, you know, they, 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 at least the administration won't take a, uh, a huge hit for it. I, I agree with Noah that it, that it will fail. I think what it will succeed in doing, at least, you know, to the extent that this already hasn't happened, um, it'll, it'll further succeed in um, pushing... Israel and uh, Sunni Arab countries together. This is exactly the dynamic that pushed them together under Obama uh, as they had shared this common threat in Iran and um, saw the U.S. trying to rehabilitate Iran's image. Well, you know, so let's, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. I mean, let's talk about idealism. Uh, the, the Democratic Party or... The foreign policy wise minds uh, of the Democratic Party bought into the logic of the Iran deal, right? Which was we can bring Iran into the community of nations. We struck the deal and it pushed Iran's timeline for getting a nuclear bomb 11 years down the road. And according to Obama, at least on 60 Minutes, um, had features of the deal that would have pushed it even further down the road. So so suddenly they can't really get the bomb until 2027, 2028 at the very minimum. And who knows what happens between now and then. And we're bringing them into the community of nations. Maybe their behavior will moderate as they get into the community of nations. And Trump comes in and says, the hell with all of this. And the people who didn't like it, who said, we can't deal with these people, they're animals, they're totalitarians. They wanted. They're millenarians who want to destroy Israel, and who are fomenters of terrorism and discord and horror. Those people, uh, you know, they come in and they. Th- these are the people that this that the battle in the foreign policy community is between. Does the United States confront bad actors, particularly radical actors in the world, or does it seek to? 
cosset them. I don't even know what the word would be. I mean, to sort of to to knit them into a larger community without reference to their own uh, flaws or their own you know behaviors. And so maybe what's going on here is that this is what the Biden people actually believe to their marrow. Like it isn't just they they think that the direction that that a confrontational direction is a threat to the world and they're going to do this even if it's unpopular or even if it won't buy them anything because this is who they are, this is what they believe, and that it's to their credit in that sense that they are not cynical, they're not pursuing a foreign policy of cynicism, but a foreign policy that that expresses the the long-held views and doctrines of their of their ideological tendencies. Well, I don't know. We don't seem to have any indication that they're prepared to abandon the uh, objective advances in American interests in the region that were achieved under Donald Trump. I mean, Jared ah, Kushner is getting is calls. That is not true. That is not from true. From the Biden White we House. Have a well, piece. Well, no, I just got to fit. We, I have to tell you, we have an article coming up in our May issue by Jonathan Shanzer about all the ways in which the United States is pushing Saudi Arabia away from it and trying to establish a more a what what would the word be it's not hostile but a more um uh less friendly more skeptical uh attitude towards Saudi Arabia from from where we were yeah Trump's ears yeah that's right um and it 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 it, it, it keeps happening it's I mean I don't want to get too much into sort of you know uh, uh, An article Chan- you're Chan- not going to be able piece. to read until right. next yes. week, right? Yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, it's true. It's ongoing. There was just some story about how um, we're we're supplying supplying the Saudis with with less military support uh, still uh, that broke a few days ago. Right. Okay. Anyway, I, yeah. I'm sorry I had to interrupt you, yeah. Noah, but since this is on my mind because I was reading, uh, I was proofing the galley. Anyway, uh, but but so you're but just to make your point, you were saying that you don't see the Biden people are revolutionizing policy, or well, that, far that, be that it for me to, to okay. argue with Jonathan no. and, right. and his. Premise no, but he's not saying not revol- he's not, not saying know. right. He's not saying revolutionizing. What I'm saying, you're saying they'll take what they got. Plus From my wanna... vantage, okay. yes, I don't see anything even resem- remotely resembling the kind of naked hostility to Israeli interests in the region, much less the Sunni states, Egypt, UAE, um, uh, Saudi Arabia, obviously, and Jordan and elsewhere, um, that have gravitated uh, towards this sort of detente with Jerusalem. In, and to the, to the benefit of the United States, the United States under Barack Obama was on the outside looking in on these developments under Donald Trump. It was very much an active participant in them and integral to the region, a Middle Eastern power, which the United States is. And um, I don't see the Biden administration sacrificing those gains. Maybe I'm just maybe Jonathan has his finger on the pulse more than I do. Well, I think he's I think he's seeing, you know, he's seeing movements in the way in which d- diplomacy functions. Uh I mean, with the glaring exception of our refusal to continue to assist in the prosecution of the campaign on the Arabian Peninsula against the the Houthi uh, rebels. However, yeah, a negotiated settlement apparently is also uh, what Riyadh is is seeking, perhaps with a lot of uh, inducements from Washington, but they seem of that interest as well. Right. Anyway, uh, but so... Keep your eye on Iran and Biden and 
Tony Blinken and and all of this because there is uh, there is stuff happening, even though I don't think it looks particularly promising. But as as Noah says, you know, if if um, if America wants something, you know, if you're if you're in a negotiation and you really want something, and the other side doesn't necessarily want it that much, after all, Iran got hold of the hundred and fifty billion dollars that we were you know that we were keeping from them, um, so they don't have that much. Their inducement to go into a deal without more bribes isn't all that clear, particularly since we hear of the IEA and others say that they are back to um, enriching uranium, uh, which, uh, you know, is their, the deal's, the deal's dead, so they can do whatever they want in that sense. Um, you know, it's uh, just one of those things to, to watch. By the way, I should add that, um, you know, we had my, my sister Ruthie Bloom on la- last week. Was it last week? I guess it was last week or the week before last to talk about what's going on in the Israeli elections. And boy, is that getting crazier by the day. So uh, uh, if you're interested in it, it appears that um, the president, uh, uh, Ruby Rivlin of, of the country, who is tasked with the job of talking to everybody when, when a government can't easily be formed uh, or, you know, when a, one party doesn't simply win which has almost never happened he formally has to say offer the right to to assemble the 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 government to what part the party he believes is the most likely to be able to do that and after sort of two weeks he finally said to Bibi Netanyahu okay you can form the first government and the question is can there Bibi only has 52 seats he needs 61 uh, and uh, the the incredible oddity of the situation is that he can get seven to get fifty nine from his uh, nemesis, former aide <coughs> Naftali Bennett, but that would leave him two or three seats short. And then there is the incredibly bizarre possibility that he would need um, an Arab nationalist party of some sort. He needs some kind of an Arab party to go into government to get him over the hump. This would be the first time that an Arab party was in the government. <coughs> And uh, and uh, the idea that it, that he an Arab party would be the kingmaker in <laughs> in Israel uh, with a whip hand over whether or not the government stands or falls is um, is 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 pretty astonishing. So that's also something that's worth that's worth the watch. Uh, also worth the watch, our friends at the Bonson Group uh, and their daily newsletter, the dctoday.com, and their weekly newsletter, dividendcafe.com. Uh, look, uh, all the spending is coming down the pike. We got the Senate parliamentarians saying that basically Democrats can do whatever they want if they want to do it. And I guess the big question is with this increasingly fantastic sense that we are on the verge of a massive economic growth spurt, 6 to 7% uh, over the course of this year, uh, what are the prospects for overheating? What are the prospects for uh, blooming inflation? What do those mean, you know, in terms of investment strategies? Because they may be horrible macroeconomically, but of course there are opportunities in horror. And 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 in, and, and the, you know, how, where do you go? How do you handle this? The interplay of politics and policy is the specialty of the Bonson Group, which has two. I'm told two point eight billion dollars under management. The other day I said it was like two point five or two point six. 
and uh, and and that's David Bonson, our friend Larry Kudlow, uh, and 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 their team of uh, of bi bi coastal uh, financial management people. So look to those DC today, the DC today dot com, dividendcafe.com from the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial management and services industries, and we thank them for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. Uh, Abe, you have a story that uh, that really struck a story, an article, an opi- uh, opinion piece that struck your fancy, or you know, th- you thought was well worth talking about. Uh, an article by uh, Raphael Raphael Manguel from the uh, Manhattan Institute um, over at the Hill. Um, he argues um, he talks about the rise in uh, homicides in 2020. And uh, he has some thoughts on it. And he writes, though the final numbers won't be available for months, criminologists estimate that 2020 will have seen, for the first time since the mid-1990s, more than 20,000 criminal homicides. Uh, And he goes on to discuss the proffered causes for this. Some experts have argued that the spike is a temporary side effect of the pandemic brought on by its economic impact, particularly with respect to unemployment. But this is intention, he says, with the broader data on violent crimes such as homicides and economic indicators, which does not reveal a clear relationship between the two. In New York, for example, the poverty rate in 1989, the year before homicides hit a record high, 2,262, was actually slightly lower than it was in 2016, the year before Big Apple homicides hit a record low, 292. And during the Great Recession, the national homicide rate actually declined by 15%, going from 5.7 per 100,000 in 2007 to 4.8 per 100,000 in 2010, a period in which the civilian unemployment rate rose from 4.6 to 9.3%. So he argues instead that this has to do with a combination of factors relating to policing and criminal justice, which as listeners of the uh, commentary magazine podcast uh, know is, is, is you know something that we have been discussing at length. He says, recent years have seen a notable decline in the number of police on the beat. Now, he's talking about recent years. He's not just talking about um, our post-George Floyd universe. In a September 2019 report, the Police Executive Research Forum outlined what it declared a workforce crisis. A robust body of research has thoroughly illustrated that more police means less crime a finding at odds with the ever ever more popular calls to defund the police Um, and so on. So I I think what's interesting about this um, is uh, in part, as I say, that this he 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 pins this to something that began even before the calls to defund um, the police, which makes me think that this is going to continue to get worse um, now that um, the the police have been hobbled and are reticent to respond to crime um, uh, in in so many ways. Um, the, th- the one thing I think perhaps the piece misses, though, is that I think there is a pandemic-related aspect to the spike in violent crime, but it's not, it doesn't have to do with um, uh, specifically with job loss or uh, even primarily with job loss. Um, and I think that is this, just the breakdown in norms and expectations generally um, and at times of just tremendous upheaval, um, this is this is one of the things that happens: um, is that uh, uh, people come out and take advantage of the disorder generally. 
but it's but I don't think the sort of root cause, you know, like uh, the Alexandria Ocasio Cortez at some point over the summer uh, tweeted out something when 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 there was like you know looting going on of you know I don't know you know luxury stores people stealing you know thousand dollar handbags and whatever and she was talking about how this is you know a result of people needing to put food on the table um since getting uh laid off as a result of the pandemic i don't think that is at all valid you know there's there was a there was something interesting in that happened post george floyd that i think uh, to abe's uh prediction, which unfortunately I think is true, that this is going to get worse before it gets better, which is that a lot in a lot of very blue uh, uh, jurisdictions where there was a lot of activity and protest and, and defund the police rhetoric and where the very liberal city councils in those cities embraced that, they one of the first things they did as a kind of token maneuver was to get rid of specialized units. And in many places like Portland and, and Seattle, for example, those were gun uh, units, units that, that spent all of their time trying to track down and get off the streets a lot of illegal guns, or they were homicide units that had special, um, uh, just special units that had that knew the community and knew what was going on and were, were pretty effective at keeping those numbers down. Well, as soon as they disbanded those, that stopped, right? And it put a lot more pressure on the non-specialized beat cop who has to kind of do a lot of things. And nowadays, particularly with the pandemic and in cities like Seattle and Portland, a lot of mental health work actually is what they spend time on their beat doing. So you add it to their burden, you do you take away the specialization, and then you have um, you know city councils that are even even more extreme, completely saying defund the police, which I think speaks to the demoralization point that you mentioned, Abe. You know we we can't just look at the numbers; we have to think about the kind of culture that's created in a society where people are screaming and yelling and calling you a murderer and a racist on a regular basis. And basis, and if you happen to be a minority police officer, you're getting even more abuse, actually. And certainly here in D.C. for the last year, it's it's been terrible. Um, that demoralizes people in that profession, understandably so. And they don't, you know, at a certain point, they say, "Why am I doing this? I'm not supported by my uh, elected officials. I'm not supported by my community. The national media keeps calling me terrible and racist. What's the point?" So that's a, another long term crisis that's going to be faced. Is uh, the more we need good law enforcement, the harder it's going to be to recruit and retain people to do that. And it's, it's a hard crisis to hide, you know, I mean, because it, it, it happens to people and they're not inclined to be quiet about it. You know, uh, uh, you know, it, it makes headlines. Crimes make headlines. And I'll, and I'll make my, my perennial point, which is that the people who, who want the most law enforcement and need it the most are actually usually in in high crime, you know, low economic, uh, often minority neighborhoods in these large cities. They don't want to defund the police. They want better trained police, which is legitimate and fair. But they're not asking for fewer cops on their on their block at all. There's no greater sign of privilege than being able to say because you live in a in a wildly safe neighborhood that we should defund the police because they are a source for for danger more than they are for good that that you are in a you are in a quite a, 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 um, a an, an excellent social position if, if you can actually say that and, and believe it right you can say it and believe it and and the, the problem the problem there is that um uh the bell will eventually toll for you it is the the low crime era in the united states um Part of the reason that the stats were so low until the 1960s was that stats were often not collected in the worst 
neighborhoods, uh, uh, crime crime statistics, and particularly in sort of more you know racially divided places, you know Harlem, the South Side of Chicago, stuff like that. They they didn't aggregate the crime stats locally, um, and so when they started to, uh, in part, uh, you know, it was revealed that there were these were these were things probably had been a lot worse than we realized. But by the mid-1970s, as the crime spike was real everywhere, everybody was unsafe, particularly in cities. But, I mean, everybody everybody felt menaced. Cars were broken into, you know, muggings skyrocketed. Uh, you know, there was, there was very little uh, security. And so you can say now, okay, well, let's, uh, let, let, let's figure out how to handle this. Um, because of you know all this uh, social social injustice, and I don't really feel particularly threatened. And then seven years from now, let's see how they feel. Let's see what kind of fights they have, or or, or you know rallies they have because uh, because they 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 feel unsafe. I mean, there are interesting you know, there are interesting cross currents here. Uh, the since the early 1990s, the training of New York City police officers. Uh, has has been a remarkable achievement uh, in 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 teaching them uh, professionalism and restraint. This was not true of the New York City Police Department in the '60s and '70s. Uh, the police were it was a nepotistic organization. Jobs passed from you know from father to son to grandson. Um, cops were often not very inspired to be policemen, except that it was the family job. They liked 911 policing because they preferred to stay in their cars and not patrol and not, you know, get themselves crosswise of people. And um, and they pulled their guns a lot. They pulled their guns constantly and fired their weapons a lot. And one of the interesting things about New York City stats, and New York City is important because it, the crime drop in New York City was responsible for half the, the crime drop in the United States in the 1990s, just from that one city alone. And New York was not in aggregate a, a particularly dangerous American city. That's the weird part. It's just that it was so big. Like it was the 10th worst crime city in the United States. Uh, but because it was, you know, uh, 10 times the size of the worst, which I think was New Orleans, of course, the aggregate numbers were much larger. But um, they pulled their guns a lot, they used their guns a lot. Uh, and now they never pull their guns. And the numbers of times that the police officer uh, might actually pull his gun in his career in New York City is like maybe one, maybe two. There are almost no firings of weapons, um, you know, and th- this is all training. But, and this is where it gets complicated, and Rafael Mangual's point starts getting interesting, Um uh, they were bad, but there was also an ideological war against the police in the 60s and 70s, part of which, you know, was led to 911 policing, which is where cops respond to crimes after they've occurred rather than dealing, trying to um, retard crime or interfere with crime before it starts, which, of course, requires a more active public presence. And that's where you get things like, a you know, a beat cop who is nasty to people or does does terrible things. Um and so, and there was a lot of corruption. You know, there was a lot of there, the NAP Commission in New York City went into the degree to which there were hundreds of millions of dollars of payoffs going to cops and all of that. So the police department had to go through this reckoning. It was bad. It was behaving badly. It was incompetent. It wasn't very good. But was it good for the city that the cops came under assault like that? 
I mean, this was a double-edged sword because you depressed them too and you made them worse cops. They became worse cops, not better cops, for a generation because of that assault. And this is exactly so. Can police in the United States be better trained? Yes. Can they behave? Can their can their interactions with civilians wherever they are in suburbs and cities? Can they be better? Can they be more adept? Absolutely. We've seen it happen. We've seen it work. Um, does an assault on them while you are saying they need to get better? Is that going to worsen the crime situation in those cities? Without question, we know this to be the case from 2020. We know it to be the case now. My my colleague, uh, uh, Michael Goodwin at the New York Post, you know, collected stats. Murder is up 55% in New York City um, over the past year. Uh, uh, shootings are up 45%. Like, these numbers are real. And the point is that the base started rising that from that 290 number in 2010 Crime has been creeping up and the levels are very, 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 very low in historical terms, but have 50% jumps a year and it's five years from now and they're going to start being close to where they were just when crime went haywire. Well, and there's a huge perception problem um, here on the part of the public that's been fueled not just by activists, but by the mainstream media and its focus on only on white police officer shoots black perp, right? This is this is the story you're always hearing. This is really the only story that's told when we talk about uh, police violence. Um, it is vanishingly rare. It's just extremely rare. And I know, you know, we've had Will Riley on here who's, who's talked about this at length and he's written about it too, but it's really important that Amer- that perception shift needs to be constantly challenged because when the public hears about any sort of interaction with a police officer that that ends in the death of a civilian, they're jumping to an understanding that's statistically not true and from a perception perspective is going to continue to erode the cop's ability to do their job. And, and certainly erode the prospect of any change you want to see in the way policing works. Like, as John says, yes, of course, in the past, you know, there has been um, police reform things and things of that nature. In a culture where all the police are hearing are not not merely you know you need to do this you should do this differently or but you are the monsters of our society um, in part by virtue of what you chose to do with your life. Um, and in the professional activist class, particularly Black Lives Matter, I will tell you here in D.C. Anytime there is an officer involved shooting. They assemble at the at the police station where the cop was from and start protesting before a single fact has been released. They did this with Dion Kay. They claimed he was shot in the back, unarmed by a police officer. No, he was pointing his gun at a police officer, as you can see from the body cam footage. But they assemble and start problems and the media comes and starts talking to all of them. And all this stuff gets on the record before a single fact is released. That's now how these things occur. And that's also bad. We, The media is incredibly irresponsible for amplifying that activist message uncritically. And the cops are not legally allowed to start releasing certain information. They have a process they have to go through. So they're on the back foot because there's no way for them to speak to the lies until the lies have spread. Great. Now, uh, not great. I don't know why I said great, because it's obviously the opposite of great. But I needed to say something because I need to talk to change uh, topics and talk to you about your privacy because, you know, private citizens used to be private and now the internet has made us all public, you know, public in the sense that all, everything you do, everything you look at, everything you tweet, everything 
is uh, constitutes data that are collected, crawled through, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. And it's your record, and it's there so they can sell things to you. And it also may be there for that for for others to start persecuting you. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. And so to keep your data private when you go online, you got to turn to ExpressVPN. You know, one of the data points that uh, is assigned to you is your the IP address on your, on, your, on your computer or your mobile device or whatever. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you in your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time you turn it on, you're given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers, and so third parties can't identify you so easily or harvest your data. It's so easy to use no matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, smart TV. All you have to do is tap one button to get protected by ExpressVPN. So if you're like me and you believe your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com commentary and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary. Go to expressvpn.com slash commentary to learn more. Um, Thomas Edsel, the most interesting liberal columnist in America, uh, because his column largely deals with social science research into uh, political behavior and is uh, very um, honest and forthright, has a remarkable piece this morning that I need to, I had up and then it disappeared. Okay, here we go. Uh, The fear that is shaping American politics. And it's interesting because when I tell you what the topic is, you're going to say, oh no, another liberal, here here they go and here they come, which is, you know, it begins by saying, why do Republicans want to restrict voting rights so much? So you can go from there and say, this isn't fair, but let me just go on with it. Why is it determined to constrain the franchise? Because Republicans are worried about changing demographics, and it's this big number that we that we hear about that we have by 2045, um, non-Hispanic whites of all ages will drop under 50% of the U.S. population, that uh, we, in 2014, uh, public school students uh, drop below 50% in the schools, and that uh, make up about 44% now, whereas in 1995, 65% were white. And he brings this up only to say that this notion that um, minority increasing, the increasing minority role in life and the increasing uh, minority population are terrifying to Republicans and they are constraining the franchise if that is what they are doing not because they are racist, but because this is is a political disaster for them. And, uh, but there's a lot of data in here to suggest that this calculation about what it means to be white uh, has been, is being jimmied with, and it's a gimmick to say that uh, th- that these populations are becoming minority because it's more likely the better descriptor is that the population of the United States, as was true with other ethnic groups in the 19th and early 20th centuries, is becoming more miscegenated. Is, uh, there, is, there are mixings between groups, uh, between whites and non-whites and all of that, and then the kids that, that are born of that, can they can be declared... 
members of minority groups, they can also be white or their or or whiteness doesn't mean anything anymore uh, as a category because basically we are becoming a heterogeneous people at a rapid clip. And as I say, this happened in the 19th century. Uh, an Irish person was no more likely to marry an Italian person than in the 1970s, a black person was to marry a white person. These were distinct uh, identities. An Irish person certainly wouldn't marry somebody with an English accent. Uh, these were distinct populations that did not blend. And now, is there any sense that they that they don't blend in 2021? No, uh, I don't think so. So uh, it's a very interesting piece, and it raises this specific question. Don't Republicans... And, you know, the autopsy that was rejected by Trump and all of that for, I think, good reason, political reason in 2016. But uh, don't Republicans need to say, okay, there's a coming political reality. And what we need to do is figure out how to talk to people who are not who are not already with us in order about issues that, that they care about that harmonize with our general ideological tendency, bring them along and break the Democratic stranglehold on people who feel themselves to be people of color or minorities, uh, all you got to do is break it a little bit. You don't have to break it the whole way and then generate, you know, as the generations pass, things will get better as more people in these communities are more divided or more, you know, ideologically and in partisan terms, heterodox than they are now. I, I got to tell you, I share your esteem for Mr. Etzel. Um, I found this column to be a real miss on his part. It began as an exercise in question begging. It assumed a premise that it did not prove the notion that the GOP is is attempting to uh, reduce the exercise of the franchise should manifest in the reduction of the exercise of the franchise. We're, we're now 10 years, 15 years into the uh, efforts to impose, for example, voter ID requirements in various states. We have not seen a reduction in minority participation the exception of 2016, where we sort of returned to a pre-post-Obama status quo among African-American voters. We have not seen a turn off, a turn down in voter participation. The assumption on the part of uh, Mr. Edsel that we have some sort of uh, racial hostility, racial anxiety here, I don't think he proved. There's a fair amount of academic gloss on his assumption here, more so than you normally get from people who make that argument. Nevertheless, it is the same argument and it is uh, not compelling. And I just I found it to be an attempt really to uh, confirm the biases of the readership. But I don't think it proved it to any degree to anyone who's skeptical of the premise as I am. Look, I I don't want to defend the notion that, you know, uh, uh, let me put it this way. I know from conversations and things like that over the course of 20 years that, you know, like hard-charging, cynical, get-out-the-vote guys who do this for a living believe in voter suppression. They don't believe in it because they think it's good. They believe in it because they think it's necessary. They believe in it because they think everybody does it. And there are many kinds of voter suppression. Negative advertising is a form of voter suppression. It's not. No, it's not. No, it's not a du jour. It's not. I mean, if we're going to have a, a I understand what you're trying to do here, but if we're going to have a debate over terms, we have to have a shared definition of those terms. No, but no, but no, but let me, let me, what I mean is I'm talking about the mindset of the political professional. Okay. What they want to do 
is not only gin up as much of their vote as they can, but figure out ways to depress the vote of the other guy. Okay. And there's a, and so there is a continuum from do things or, you know, proffer it, say things about the guy, the other guy in such negative terms that you're going to get some of the people who might vote for him to stay home. Two, we got to make sure to the extent that we can to limit, to, to, to try to interfere with his broad-based turnout because our turnout isn't as broad-based. Now, I'm not saying that they I'm saying they're wrong. Here's what, what I want to say is this is this form of politics is empowering to the political class because people who know how to do these sorts of things, the magicians of negative advertising or the magicians of uh voter laws that will somehow mystically help you and hurt the other party, uh get paid a lot of money for their arcane wisdom. They're lawyers, they make commercials, they do this, they do that. This is a big business because if all you're saying is what you really need to do is do work, move heaven and earth to get your to, to do voter turnout and to get more people to vote for you because you're more persuasive, because you can reach across the aisle to people who aren't in your base and because you are really good at getting people to come out to the polls they that's they think that's all sentimental hogwash and what's important is pushing the other guy down into the garbage can far enough so that your head pops up out of your gar- garbage can like Oscar the Grouch and you're visible and he's not and then and then you win Okay, and but one, I yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say but one of the things he raises but doesn't really explore further which I wish he had is is a is a rebuke a little bit to that sensibility because it, he's exploring this question of will there be a kind of white backlash against some of the stuff that Joe Biden and the Democrats are trying to do. And one of the one of the political scientists he interviews says something really fascinating which is if you look at the way it, it sort of white people's views of the fact that they will soon be, you know, a this will be a majority minority country what you find isn't that that bothers them. In fact, even pretty staunchly Republican uh, white people will say what what the backlash is starts to brew when they're when they feel like they, as a racial group, are being directly attacked because it's the end of race neutral discussions about things. So I think this is where actually there's a huge risk for Biden going forward and the Democrats. And we saw this from some of the results in 2020. And that's that the message of anti-racism theory, critical race theory, and equity versus equality, that is going to, that backlash has already started. That is the message that not only white Republicans dislike, but small businessmen in the Hispanic and Asian American communities, people who might not otherwise identify with, you know, rich white Republicans in the country club will feel some sort of, um, uh, dislike of the messaging that, you know, everyone who isn't an African American is racist. You have to look at everything through a critical race theory lens. For Asian Americans in particular, you're only a member of our protected group when it suits us. But when you want to get into Harvard, we're going to leave, hang you out to dry. There's so many contradictions in the anti-racism and equity messaging that are just being steamrolled by the Democrats and Biden right now. That's where I could see a very large and multiracial coalition backlash happening in the future. I also think that it doesn't look this 
stuff in Georgia with the voter law that had the Major League Baseball pull the All-Star game for a bill that as it came down the pike and as it went through the process of going through the Georgia legislature uh, became a, a fairly conventional uh, voters, you know, uh, voting security and uh, effort to prevent voter fraud bill that mirrors things in, in many other states with this particular in, insane emphasis on this notion that it's so horrible because no one can go down go down the line and give people water when they're waiting in long lines. How dare you not be able to give people water? The act of preventing campaigns from providing goods and services to people as they're waiting online to vote is a hundred-year liberal reformist plan that began in Chicago and has spread outward and is axiomatic to people who understand how voter fraud works. Voter fraud is give somebody somebody something when they're on the line, like $5 in walking around money, and then maybe they'll vote for you. Like that you're not supposed to do that, and water is another version of that, right? So Georgia does this. Joe Biden says it's Jim Crow. They move the all-star game. However, Georgia is also the state where the original version of the bill did have some extremely questionable things in it, number one, and number two, where they just had two months in which the in which some re- relatively large number of Georgia Republicans represented by a relatively large number of Georgia Republican state legislators believed that the election had been stolen falsely and believed all kinds of nonsense and believed that Democrats have figured out magical ways to steal elections and that therefore all bets are off and you have to do what you can to keep them from going. This is a triumph of the democratic process that the bill that emerged and became law wasn't that bill, but it could have been that bill. I mean, it's not like there weren't a lot of Republicans who wanted the bill to be that bill. That's but this is and this is really annoying to me is that as a heuristic, the notion that we should evaluate this bill through the prism of what happened in December and January and Donald Trump's efforts to to game the system and to force uh, elected officials and state officials in Georgia to to hand him the election somehow, um, that we should view this law through that prism. And I I don't think that's that's a flawed approach to this from a position of ignorance. Um, when you know nothing at all about this sort of thing and you want to just uh, you know to look at it as a heuristic, that's one way to do it. But we then we started getting fact checks. Then we started getting people who actually read the bill, and the heuristic survives, and people are still clinging to it as though, well, I I, I you know I'm disregarding this fact check. I'm disregarding the text of this law. Because my truth tells me something else. Right. And that's nonsense. That's trash. And when you're feeding it to an audience uh, that wants to hear that sort of thing, you're not performing journalism now. You're doing something very different. We're talking on two tracks because there's, of course, not a word that you said there that I disagree with. I want to talk about the mindset within the Republican Party and the conservative movement that somehow has come to acknowledge implicitly that the liberal idea, which is that they are inexorably, they are inexorably becoming the minority, the majority, and that white people represented by the Democratic Republican Party are becoming a minority, and therefore all bets are off, they're coming 
we have to figure out ways to stop them from coming rather than shifting your idea about what it is to win elections because it's so easy for so many Republicans to get elected because they're in these districts that are 60, 70% people exactly like them. And so that's what they think an election ought to be. But, you know, for much of the 20th century, that is not what elections were. And so they have to move away from this idea that if they can just combine this secret sauce of ginning up their base and figuring out ways to retard the other guy's base, if they can move away from that into a more a larger model of persuasion, and this is where Trump's influence on the party in future could be incredibly malign, because, of course, he went with a base strategy and lost. So therefore, you should go, you know what? Eh, it's not that good a strategy, right? Like, I'm going to alienate everybody who doesn't like me already. Fine. And, you know, we'll see if we can get... And he got a lot more votes, but there were a lot more people who voted against him. He lost. He tells them and a lot of them that he won. They're like, no, no, he actually really won. So that the thing that should tell them... We got to figure out a different way to do this. They get to go back and rely on their comforting. I want to do the same thing that we were trying to do before. Hey, well, do you want to... there's there's something that, that they can build on here regarding Edsel's column. He says, Edsel says that Hispanics are driving the minority surge, right, in, in population. Um, this is very valuable and interesting information because what what has been demonstrated in the last election is that the sort of expert understanding of how Hispanics vote is completely off the mark. Um, and there is a lot more conservative support uh, among Hispanics than, than people had assumed. And that, and that would actually, I think um, also uh, militate against what uh, uh, Edsel argues is this fear. I mean, uh, on the right, um, there is, there is reason to be, hopeful about about uh, a, a rising Hispanic American population. And as Edsel notes, which is something that Nate Cohen had written about as early as 2014, and I've been latching onto for a long time, racial characteristics, racial self-identification is a fluid condition. It changes over time for a lot of people. A lot of Hispanics that, that tell the census taker in 2010 that they identify as, as Hispanic identify as white in 2020. That's something that's observable. And it has a lot to do more with socioeconomic conditions than it does racial conditions. We, when we talk about race as though it's an immutable characteristic, which is something that the intersectional left loves, it's just simply not true. Right. It's the opposite of an immutable characteristic because it can be mutable. Right. Literally can be mutable by marriage. You are one race. You marry somebody of another race. You have children. Those children are not Despite the effort to, you know, find authenticity in an ethnic, that whatever they are, they are not purely one thing or the other. Not even miscegenation. I mean, we're just talking about people who identify as one ethnic group in one decade and another in another because they can. (laughs) No one's stopping you. Yeah. But, you know, to to Abe's point, not that I, 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 these numbers are very small and they're only suggestive of the future, but in the top 25 districts uh, where uh, Hillary, uh, where the margin from Democrat to Republican shrank most radically. In other words, the districts that went for Hillary but moved significantly toward Trump or went for Trump, of those 25 districts, 
all 25 were majority Hispanic. 25 out of 25. So those numbers, you know, some of them, some of those counties are really small. You know, there's like, there are counties that's like 4,000 people on the, you know, along the Rio Grande, you know, where, where you saw that bizarre shift, you know, where suddenly Trump got 60% of the vote when he had gotten 30%, you know, there were like a 60, 60 percentage point shift or whatever it was. Um, but I mean, that is suggestive of something. And the question is, do you, with data like that or information like that, do you double down on the, do you say, okay, this is a fertile field to plow? Or do you listen to that guy who comes to you and says, I really know how to make sure that a lot of those people aren't going to vote if we do X, Y, and Z. And I'm just telling you, Noah, from the time I really started paying attention to politics in the in the, in the the mid-1980s, that is a voice. And it's voice. I, I, I don't disagree with that. There's just a profound distinction between suppression and depression. Right. One is legitimate. The other is not. Well, of course. Well, it's right. It's legitimate. It just can be self-defeating, right? In other words, like negative advertising is legitimate and it had it has had very good consequences to some extent for people who have used, deployed it successfully. Um, but if you think that that's the secret to w- winning a race, you know, you watch those horrible, I mean, you know, you got that thing where you had these horrible ads all over Senate ads in the South and everything. And, 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 the, and the, everything sort of remained pretty much as it was. So uh, let me just uh, talk to you before we go about the X chair uh, the desk chair, the wonderful desk chair with dynamic variable lumbar support and the new XHMT technology that provides heat and massage therapy while you're sitting at your desk with its four different massage modes and fast warming heat for therapy when you're sore, provides increased blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy. Uh, it makes sitting at your desk uh, a pleasure rather than a pain, uh, either a literal pain or an exhausting pain. Uh, and so instead of my old uncomfortable office chair, I look forward to spending hours in the luxury supercar of office chairs. You won't believe the X chair difference until you feel it for yourself. It's on sale now for $100 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com or call one 844 for X chair. X chair is a 30 day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code X wheels for free X wheel blade casters, xchaircommentary.com. So, uh, thanks everybody for listening. I'm going to tell you again to go to merch.commentarymagazine.com to get that t-shirt that sweatshirt that tote bag and we are reordering the mugs that went like hotcakes last week 20 bucks for a keep the candle burning mug abe uses it i i don't even have one because we sold the one i was going to use out from under me to a deserving and wonderful commentary magazine podcast listener thank you so much for buying it buy more keep buying them we're going to have more in order them and we'll 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 restock you and uh we will be back with you tomorrow so for abe noah and christina i'm john pod keep the candle burning